So, um, like Megan said, I, it is kind of weird to say Merry Christmas, right? Because it feels like, man, we just had Thanksgiving. Are we, are we ready for it? How many of you are just are ready for Christmas? You fully embraced it. Okay, like six of you. How many of those you just raised their hand had a bunch of coffee this morning? <laughs> yes. Okay, how many of you just aren't sure if you're ready for it or not? Right? Okay, a bunch of you, and a bunch of you just aren't sure about anything in life. And that's an issue too, but we'll get there later. So, um... We're starting this series, uh, it's titled Waiting for the King, and kind of in preparation for this series, kind of just praying through, like, Lord, what do you have for us in terms of this year, this series, kind of this particular moment in time, uh, both culturally and us as a church in particular, and God just made it pretty clear to be talking about waiting, and I thought, oh, this is, this is a great idea, this is, this is fresh, this is new, and turns out like waiting is actually like what Advent means. And so we've been as a church talking about this for thousands of years. So this is nothing new at all. So you're welcome. Here's a really, really old series that many churches do forever. So it's good. Well, we get to talk about waiting. Um, Officially, the wait for kind of Christmas season is over, which is kind of nice. Like here we are, it's official. Um, But we still get to wait for Christmas. And if you're a little kid, like you're, you're really waiting for like that one day, right? Like how many of you remember when you were young, just waiting for the actual day of Christmas? Like, oh, I can't wait for that day. Like how many of you, just being honest, were also those cheaters who looked in your parents' closet to see what might happen on that day? Okay, this is church. It's a place to be honest. Okay, how many? How many of you still want to cheat and look even as adults? Right, a number of you. Okay, it's, I see people pointing to their spouses like hide strategically. My five-year-old keeps asking me, she goes, Dad, is it Christmas? Is it Christmas? Is it Christmas? Is it Christmas? Like 17 times a day. No, it's not Christmas yet. It'll happen. Eventually it will be here. But I think we can all remember these days when Man, we, were just, we just wanted it to happen so bad, and oh, waiting is so hard. And the reality is, like, waiting is hard. And I'm not just talking about Christmas. Some of us are like, thank you that we have to wait. I have so much to do before then. And I'm not necessarily looking forward to that day. There's a lot of dynamics going on. But, man, in general, waiting is just hard. Waiting is hard. We don't like to wait. And we've talked about this a little bit, but we live in a world where speed is king. We want everything. We want it fast. We want it efficient. And we hate to wait. Right? We, we hate waiting for anything. Like, think about when you're at a stoplight, and you're the second car. There's a car in front of you, and it's red, and then it turns green, right? But the person doesn't move, and you're just sitting there. How long will you wait before you, like, make it known that, hello, it's time to move, like, half a second, three seconds, like, much more than five seconds, and then the passenger of your car is like, do something, help me out here. Right? We, we don't like waiting for like, service at a restaurant. Right? You're sitting, and if service is, is bad, what do we call it? We call it slow. Ah, oh, slow. It's so slow. It's so bad. Right? Or when you have to call any sort of service provider. This last week, I had to call both my health insurance provider and the internet provider. And I just, I hate those phone calls. Because you know you're just going to wait forever. You're just waiting. It's, like an, it's an hour conversation. No matter what, it's going to be an hour. You know it's coming. But man, you have to wait. Right? How about, um, I'm just being honest with some personal struggles that I have. Like a little bit of millennial bent in me. Um, I'll watch a movie or I'll watch a sporting event, which I don't really watch either one of those that often. But when I do, like I find myself in the middle of them going like, okay, I'm kind of ready for this to be done now. 
Like, it's like an hour into anything. I'm just like, okay, like, what else is going on? Like, I don't know. I'm kind of ready. And then you, like, you start pulling out your phone. You're like, okay, what else is going on? I can double task. I can triple task. Like, what else is going on? Literally, last week, my wife and I watched Mission Impossible, which is, like, the fastest possible movie you could ever watch. It's, like, explosion, this and that, perpetually. And I'm halfway through. I'm just kind of like, okay, like, I'm just kind of waiting. Like, when's this thing going to get done? Or um, recently someone kind of ruined my life and they, they told me that you can listen to audiobooks and podcasts at one and a half times speed or even, <laughs> or even double speed. So now I literally can't listen to a podcast in normal speed because it, I'm just waiting for this thing to be over. I'm just waiting. Give me the juice. Give it to me now, right? Like I've even heard that some people in churches when listening to long introductions just want the preacher to get to the content very, very quickly, and the waiting can be super hard. I had like four or five amens on that first service. I'm just saying. You guys are a lot more sedated. We don't like waiting. I was reading an article recently that was talking about um, kind of the e-commerce world. And any industry that's making it right now is really focusing on next-day delivery. Like, if you don't have next-day delivery, like, you're in trouble, right? They're, they're talking about, like, you need to be able to order something by 3 p.m. one day so that you can get it the very next day. We want things now. We're a culture that's obsessed with speed. We want everything yesterday, and things just keep getting faster and faster and faster and faster. And it's weird to kind of see where we have moved culturally, even just from a number of years ago. Recently, I heard that um, when automobiles were first being introduced, people literally believed that if you sat in a car going over 30 miles per hour, you would die. Can you imagine that? Like, I've literally driven a car that'll do zero to 60 in well under three seconds, and we just want faster and faster. Give me this car that'll do under two seconds. Like, that's the world we live in. When movies were first being introduced, they literally had to have nurses in the theater, like in the room, because when people watched a motion picture that was like moving so fast back in the day, people would get disoriented and pass out. Like, it's a true story. And now, like, I'm halfway through Mission Impossible going like, okay, what's the next thing that's going to happen? I'm ready. Give it to me. Give it to me now. Man, we are a culture that's obsessed with speed. In the year 2000, um, the average attention span for an adult was right around 12 seconds, which if you think about it, like, I don't know, that seems like pretty dang short, right? But in, 19, in 2019, guess what it is today? It's eight seconds. Eight. We just beat out the goldfish by one second. They have an attention span of nine seconds. <laughs> Literally. Like, I'm not, that's, that is true. The problem with our love of speed and our hating to wait is multifaceted. On the, one, on the one hand, it's problematic when we look around at the world. And we look around at a number of things that aren't the way that we'd like them to be, and we'd like them to change now. Right? You look around and you see whether it's hurt or pain, whether it's something that happens out there, and you just think, man, why can't we change this now? And, it, and it's actually becoming something that's causing all kinds of anxiety and stress on individuals when we just look out into the world. I was reading an article 
from my seminary that came out this last week on Christians and mental health. And they were talking about this idea of vicarious trauma. And I'm just going to read an excerpt from here. It says, one unintentional result of 24-7 news feeds is that our brains are frequently inundated with images and stories of trauma. Think about like every time you open up your phone, every time you turn anything on, it's like, okay, there's no more trauma, more trauma, more trauma. It says, tragic events from near and far are experienced in nearly real time and tend to invade innocuous social media stories and home pages. Unfortunately, the human brain is not very adept at differentiating another's traumatic experience from our own, resulting in a heightened state of arousal and stress that is physically and emotionally destructive over time. God did not design our bodies and minds to be in a state of nearly continuous hyperarousal, and current technologies may unnecessarily activate the brain's natural threat detection mechanisms, leading to exhaustion, cynicism, and despair. Right, so this is the world we live in. We see trauma all over the place, and we want to fix it now. And the fact that we can't gives us kind of that deep sense of like, oh, stress. Like, like think about when you watch a movie and you see something traumatic, and it like physically irks you. Like we are, we are living in a world where it's not just the movie, but it's everything. And these things are real. And so we live with this ongoing low-level stress for most people. And it doesn't just happen when you look out into the world. This is very true for Christians. Uh, In the Christian world, we have a certain moral ethic that we want things to be a certain way, which is right and good. And we look around and we want to help everyone. Right? Even think about like our our Christmas generosity campaign. There there are so many different places where we can give to try to, to try to help those who are in need. And man, when we can't alleviate all the immediate needs that we see, we feel the weight of that just as Christians as a whole. And then beyond just looking out into the world, the reality is when we look into the mirror, we feel this exact same stress and same weight, right? You look into the world or you look into the mirror and you see yourself and you look at yourself and you go, man, I'm not quite where I would like to be. And instead of saying, you know what, I'm just going to sit in patience as I slowly form myself over time to where I think God wants me to be, we want to be changed today, Right? So when we look at this whole series that we just came out of, our spiritual disciplines, a lot of us go through these disciplines, and if we don't see results immediately, we start wondering, man, what's everyone else doing that I'm not? I feel left behind. I want to see change now. We live in a world where we want to see everything change now, whether it's outside, whether it's in the church, whether it's in our own lives. The problem is we... We don't have control over all these things. We don't have control over all the news stories that we hear. We don't have control over every ask of someone in financial need. And we don't have control over some of the spiritual formation that's happening within our own lives. Right? The fact of the matter is, waiting is a big part of what it looks like to be human. So in waiting, we're going to look at the story of the birth of Jesus. In waiting, we're going to look at this whole idea of Christmas because it has so much to say about the state of where we are, the state of who we are, and what we need most in our lives, and that is basically a king worth waiting for. In order to get into this, we are going to, um, we're going to look at um, kind of just three different big spaces that you and I wait in. Uh, We wait in a number of different spaces, and then we're going to look at the book of Matthew and how it addresses this throughout the next month. But all of us as Christians kind of wait in three different spaces, I think, Um, or even just as people. The first space that we wait in 
is a, is a person who says, you know what, I'm waiting for everyone else to catch up to me and where I am. This is the person who really struggles with pride. Um, we look at our life and we think, you know what, everyone else just needs to catch up to me. Everyone else is slow. They're slow when they're thinking about the world. They're slow in their intake. They're slow in their intellect. They need to catch up to where I am. They need to think the way that I do. They need to vote the way that I do. They need to act the way that I do. If everyone else could just be like me, we'd be okay. Why can't everyone else just catch up? And we have this weird spot of waiting there. The other spot of waiting is the average person who may not struggle with pride, but maybe on the opposite end of that and struggle with insecurity. And they're waiting for God to do something in their life. They're waiting. You know, they look around and they see, like, everyone else seems to be getting this Christian thing down. But I just keep, it just, my life just keeps struggling. I just keep struggling. What's happening? I'm, I'm not where I want to be. It doesn't seem like God's doing anything great in my life. Like, God, do you even love me? And maybe that's neither one of those. Maybe you're neither one of those. Maybe you're in the third category where you're literally just waiting for God to show if he even exists or not. Or there's a lot of people who are like, God, if, if you're real, why don't you just show yourself now? God, if you're re- real, why don't you do something about injustice I see in the world? And we're still in this period of waiting. God, why would you wait? Maybe you don't exist. No matter which of these categories you're in, the whole story of Christmas has a lot to say about each of these, primarily around this whole idea of a king worth waiting for. Um, To get into this, we're going to start out with a a big, long chunk of uh, genealogy today, so you're welcome for that ahead of time. Um, Would you stand with me? We're going to open up in Matthew chapter 1, where Matthew has a ton to say about waiting. Um, This is going to feel a little bit laborious to some of you. Some of these names are going to feel like, man, who, what, why? Um, But Matthew has something very specific to teach us through this incredible resume. Here we go, starting in verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah, and his brothers, and Judah, the father of Perez, and Zerah, by Tamar, and Perez, the father of Hezron, and Hezron, the father of Ram, and Ram, the father of Abinadab, and Abinadab, the father of Nashon, and Nashon, the father of Solomon, and Solomon, the father of Boaz, by Rahab, and Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David the king. We hanging in there? Yeah, all right, here we go. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Jaram, and Jaram the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, And Manasseh, the father of Amos, and Amos, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers, at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Sheatil, and Sheatil, the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel, the father of Abud, 
and Abud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Akim, and Akim the father of Iliad, and Iliad the father of Eliezer, and Eliezer the father of Mathan, and Mathan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who was called Christ. Verse 17, So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may take a seat. And you may wonder, why in the world did we just read all those names? Right, if you're newer to church, a number of these names, probably all of them mean absolutely nothing to you. If, if you're a follower of Jesus, a number of these names sound familiar. Like, I've heard some of this story before. Like, why does the Christmas story start with this genealogy? Well, believe it or not, this genealogy is much more than genealogy. It's a resume, right? It's, it's something that talks very specifically about the history of who Jesus was. Now, in our day and age, resumes are all about the individual, right? Um, we're in a search right now for an associate pastor, so I'm receiving all kinds of different resumes. In the last couple of weeks, I've gotten 80, 90, 100 resumes. So I've just been reading resume after resume. And when you read a resume, it's all about trying to make someone look good. Like, here's my work history, Here's my awards, here's my accolades, here's the things that I've done. And it's all about the individual. Like kind of a Western world, the resume is all about one person. Well, not so much in ancient Eastern world. Um, A resume was your family lineage. It was your history. It was who your family was. It was very, very important. Um, in, in, In a way that was very different than how we would view our individual kind of personality and who we are today. Like if you were to meet someone today... You, you would ask them about them. Like, tell me about you. You would never say, so, tell me about the education of your great-grandfather. You know, tell me about your great-great-great this. We're all about the individual here. But again, not so much in the ancient day. Your lineage mattered. Pedigree mattered. Particularly when talking about someone who should be a king. Uh, when Matthew is writing, he writes this um, kind of resume, if you will, to start off with one big major point, and the big first major point that Matthew's trying to make is that Jesus is the king. He's this king that we've been waiting for for 18 centuries, for a very, very, very long time. And he does it by saying a number of things. First of all, uh, he talks about in the very, very first sentence in chapter 1, verse 1, he says, the book of gene- genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David and the son of Abraham both of which we'll talk about in a minute, being very, very important in terms of this king that they've been waiting for. So you've got to realize when Matthew writes, he's writing in a time where no one had written for 400 years. So uh, before that previously, genealogies were written about quite often. There's 13 different places in the Old Testament where genealogies were written, primarily tracking the lineage of royalty and kings. But for 400 years, no one had written anything But Matthew, off the get-go, writes up front, and he says, hey, this is the king. This is the one that we've been waiting for for a very long time. One thing that I want to mention, and just it's, it's important to be aware of, it's important to have some humility when reading, is if you were to compare the genealogy of Matthew, in Matthew chapter 1, to the genealogy of Luke, I think it's at the end of chapter 3, 
If you're a, a kind of Western thinker, you read both of those and you go like, wait a second, they don't have the same names. Like, what, this, is this reliable? Can we believe this? Like, if you compare the two, Luke starts out um, all the way, he goes all the way back to Adam. And when he gets to David, the names start to look a little bit different. Uh, basically, from Abraham to David, both genealogies are identical. But post-David, you've got some differences. And so, you know, as a critical reader of the Word of God, you look at that and you wonder, like, well, what's that about? Why are there differences? And the reality is there's a lot of different ideas. Some people, you know, some people will say, well, on, um, I, I believe it's Luke would follow uh, the, the line of Joseph and Matthew follows the line of Mary. And some people say, well, no, that's not true because if you read the text literally, like, that can't be possible. Other people would say that the families just um, separate, kind of run parallel, and then converge back together in Joseph. Other people would say, and kind of the, the most common understanding would be that Matthew, the one that we are reading, follows the lineage of, of kind of royalty and the king, following uh, David's son Solomon, who was the king, whereas Luke would follow a more literal familial line as he follows the lineage of the firstborn son after David, Nathan. Some of you, you're like, what, what, what? And the, what I'm trying to say, ultimately, is that you get to portions like this, and I think that as Christians, we need to pause here with some humility and say, you know what, there's a lot of ideas as to why they might have discrepancies or differences, um, but the truth is, like, we don't know all of the why. Um, we do know that um, Scripture is God-breathed, it's inspired, it's fully accurate and true, in the intention of the original author, but we don't always know what the intention of that original author is. But I believe that we have a ton to learn from the intention of Matthew by what he does add in his genealogy, because he adds some things in there that are not found anywhere else, and that historically you would never find in a resume. So what are these things? We're going to look at five or six of them and kind of wrap it all up together here. So Matthew... Matthew has some very particular people in his genealogy that no one else would have. He brings up some very particular instances that no one else would. We're going to look at some of them. So the first person he talks about is Abraham. Abraham is the father of, of faith in a lot of ways. He's a very, very old man. If you're not familiar with Christianity, he was around 100 years old, didn't have any kids. And God appeared to Abraham and said, I'm going to make you into a great nation. And he's the father of the Jewish nation. The nation of Israel that we have today started with Abraham. And around 100 years old, uh, God tells him, again, through you, through your line, I am going to bless the entire world. And so Abraham's thinking like, okay, this is incredible. But uh, at around 100, his wife gives birth. They have a son, Isaac. Um, but by the time Abraham dies, he doesn't really see anything come to fruition. He doesn't see this great nation that God promised. He doesn't see this Messiah. And he's, he's got to die on a deathbed going like, huh, here I am. I'm still waiting. In fact, they had to wait about 18 centuries for that promise to come true. You want to talk about a people who had to wait. It's a long time. The, um, the genealogy continues. I'm going to go, jump to the third person. So you had Abraham, you had Isaac, then you had Jacob. Why Jacob? Why is he in this genealogy? You look at someone who um, really has kind of a mixed history. You look at Jacob, and, and if you know the story, Jacob was a twin. He was the younger brother. He had an older brother, and in that day, um, the older brother had the birthright. 
Um, it was a way to preserve land primarily in families instead of just dividing, 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 dividing over generations. If you gave it to the firstborn son, the land kept with the family, but his responsibility was to oversee the land and to care for the other generations of brothers. But Jacob tricked his dad. He stole and lied from his brother and really was kind of a shifty guy. As a result of that, he had to run for most of his life um, and he had to be kind of outside of the family. So kind of a weird person to be in this line of this great king that Matthew is introducing named Jesus. Then you get to Judah. Again, Judah, super interesting. I don't know why the line would go through Judah. You would think if you know the story that it would go through um, Joseph. Joseph seems to be the better brother. Why Judah? Uh, Judah was one of the brothers who, when selling Joseph, or when trying to get rid of Joseph, he's like, you know what, instead of just letting Joseph die, let's sell him, let's make some money. So it's Judah's idea, they sell the brother, and they make some money, but then Judah, it's super interesting, and Matthew makes this very interesting point by, yeah, I'll just read this in verse 3. It says this about Judah. Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. So first of all, it's weird. You get to the third person uh, in this genealogy, and for the first time, you have a wife that's mentioned. In most genealogies, women are never mentioned. If you look at the genealogy of Luke, there's no women mentioned whatsoever. But Matthew has a little bit different agenda in sharing this story. Um, he talks about a really kind of sordid story, a story of Tamar. And if you know the story, I'm not going to describe it here because it's Christmas and we have kids in the room, but essentially Tamar was his daughter-in-law. And so it's a twisted, weird story, but for the first time, you, you kind of see Matthew saying like, hey, this is a history that's not clean. It's a, it's a weird history. There's some, there's some shady things happening here. And then you jump down and you see another interesting thing uh, when you get to verse 4. You get to Solomon, I like to call him Salmon, the father of Boaz, by Rahab. Again, if you know the story, you've got another woman being introduced here. But why does he introduce this? I mean, again, why not say uh, you've got Abraham and his wife, and you've got Isaac and his wife? No, he, he specifically picks out very particular women here. He picks out the woman, uh, Rahab. Well, Rahab was a prostitute the lowest of all social cast members at the time. Why would Matthew put that in there? Not only was she a prostitute, she wasn't a Jew. She wasn't from the right line of people. If you were writing a resume, this would literally be like, you know, you're, you're applying for some like high corporate job and you put on there, when I was 16, I was a shift manager at Carl's Jr., really good. Like, why is that in your resume? Why is Rahab in there? You continue on, and you look to Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth. Again, another woman, another outsider, the wrong gender, the wrong race that would never be included in any sort of genealogy whatsoever. And then you get to kind of like the apex of Matthew. Matthew loves David. He talks a lot about David. Ten different times in the book of Matthew, he refers to the son of David. So it's a really big deal. So we, we get to David, and the, the text says this. It says, Jesse, the father of David, the king. David was the greatest king in all, in all of Israel. It's kind of the apex of everyone who, who should be um, following the Lord, and David's this big deal. So Matthew says, okay, David, finally, king, this is good. 
You know, if there's someone to be in your lineage, it would be someone like David. But then Matthew, listen to what Matthew says. It's super interesting. He specifically points out David's major flaw. He says this, and David was the father of Solomon. And he could have ended there, but he says, by the wife of Uriah. Right? He doesn't even say by uh, Bathsheba. He says by the wife of Uriah. Again, if you've been around church for a little while, you know the story. It's a horrible story. David steals his friend's wife, gets her pregnant, and then kills his friend. Why is Matthew putting that in here? Like, it just seems like you could just say, and then there was David, and then there was Solomon, and then there was Rehoboam. But he specifically puts in here, Jesse, the father of David the king, the father of Solomon, by the wife of Uriah. Matthew seems to be pretty obsessed with bringing up a lot of painful details in this genealogy. Why would he do that? He could continue on the story. And if literally, I could go through every single list post-Babylonian exile. You could go through Manasseh, and you could say, what a heinous, horrible king he was. You could go through Uzziah, what a horrible, heinous king he was. You could go to uh, any one of these people listed, and you would go, they're utter failures. Like, why are you representing the king of the universe, this great Jesus, with all these terrible people? What are you doing, Matthew? So what is he trying to do? What's Matthew trying to show us? And what does it have to do with you and I and waiting? I don't think um, that today is any different than life a few thousand years ago. I think everyone kind of fell into one of the same three categories. Whether we struggle with pride, whether we struggle with insecurity in our faith, and whether we struggle with doubt in our faith, the same was happening in this family tree. You start with the first person who should have struggled with pride. That would be King David. This is the apex of mankind. Yes, the greatest king ever. But he's reminding us, Matthew's reminding us, that even David needed a savior. Even his moral perfection, or even he did not stand up morally. He needed a king. And then for everyone else in that list, you're reminded, man, they needed a king too. You know who needed a king? Tamar. You know who needed a king? uh, Ahaz. You know who needed a king? Manasseh. You know who needed a king? Any of the prostitutes, any of the outsiders, any of the foreigners, anyone who doesn't fit into what we think would be normal, that would be any of us. Any of us who think, you know what, I don't know if I fit in. I don't know if God likes me for where I am. Matthew seems to say again and again and again, God loves the outsider. He loves those who are broken. He loves those who are insecure. He's doing something great. He's a better king. And then for those of us who struggle to believe that God exists whatsoever because he doesn't seem to be working in our timeline. I think the biggest thing that we get out of Matthew is this whole concept that they waited a long time. You know, this promise was made to Abraham. I'm going to bring you a great king. I mean, you want to talk about, if God, if I knew that God made me a promise, like, I would expect, like, okay, how about tomorrow? Tuesday at 7 works great. What if he said, you know, it's not going to happen for 18 centuries? Right, imagine what it would be like to be that person who's living in 200 B.C. Right, so for 200 years before you, 
There's no mention of prophecies. God's not talking to anyone. It's radio silence. And you're going, God, I don't know if you exist. Maybe those stories that I heard from hundreds of years ago, maybe they were just passed down incorrectly. Maybe this like hope of a Messiah who would come and bring true peace and joy, maybe, maybe we didn't hear that right. Think about what it would have been like to sit there. Matthew breaks through the silence. And he says, God is faithful in his promises. What he promised Abraham 18 centuries earlier comes true in Jesus. So what are you waiting for this Christmas, and where do you stand? I do truly believe that all of us are in one of those three categories. I think some of us in our pride are just waiting for everyone else to catch up with us. Come on, just catch up. Be where I am. Maybe you feel like David until God humbles you. Maybe you feel like, man, I don't know if God loves me where I am. I'm struggling with this. My marriage is kind of that. My kids are this. God, would you love me where I am? I think the story reminds us, you know what? God loves you exactly where you are, and we all need a king. Or maybe you're here and you're just wondering, I don't know if any of this is real. Like I, if, if God was real, he would do something. Because his timeline should look like my timeline. God, why aren't you doing anything? Or maybe lastly, you're not waiting at all. Maybe it's just, you're just doing, life's just going. Like, you hit the Christmas season, and it's just great. Christmas is great. Like, I got good music, I got good friends, I got good wassail, I got good meals, I got, I got like this awesome list, and Rudolph, and my lights, and my family, and everything's just great. I don't need to wait for anything. Like, kingdom on earth, here it is now. God is good, amen. While we look back to a Jesus who came, we also wait for a king to return. Um, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was a theologian um, who was actually in a Nazi prison camp, um, died there. Um, But he wrote these incredible words about what it means to wait for Christmas, a posture that I think all of us need to be waiting for. And he says this, and then we'll close it in prayer. He says, not all can wait. Certainly not those who are satisfied, content, and feel that they live in the best of all possible worlds right now. Those who learn to wait are uneasy about their way of life, but yet have seen a vision of greatness in the world of the future and are patiently expecting its fulfillment. The celebration of Advent is possible only to those who are troubled in soul, who know themselves to be poor and imperfect. He might add, who know that their relationships aren't where they want them to be, who knows that the world isn't where they want it to be, who knows that their life isn't where they want it to be, and they look forward to something greater and someone who is to come. For these, it is enough to wait in humble fear until the Holy One Himself comes down to us. God in the child in the manger... God comes, the Lord Jesus comes, Christmas comes, Christmas, Christians rejoice. I think as we sit here and we ask ourselves, what am I waiting for? I think the biggest thing that all of us should be waiting for is a king, is a better king. Is a king that we get to sit here and, and every week we will kind of get closer and closer to that point when he came. But then more than just looking back to when he came, we also look forward to a day when he will come again. And man, that will be a sweet day. 
We look forward to that. Um, as we close in prayer, we're going to sing. Uh, we're going to read one more piece of liturgy, liturgy that's going to look forward to a time where Jesus will come again. And we will celebrate together a day and a season where Christ the King is worth waiting for. Would you pray with me? Father God, um, we are a people who find ourselves waiting. Um, we're waiting for a bunch of different things depending upon where we are today. Uh, some of us are waiting in pride. Some of us are waiting in insecurity. Some of us are waiting in doubt. And in each of those things, the introduction of Jesus the King shows us that Jesus, you are better. That you, that we need you, that you love us, and that you're faithful to your promises. I pray that we would be a people who hold on to those promises and who look forward to a day where we are with you. We need you and we love you more than ever, Jesus. Thank you for Christmas. Amen.